Well, once again, uh, Cedar Street Baptist Church, it is so great to be with you here this morning. It's the joy of my heart to be here with you and to open up God's Word. And if you're joining us, or if it's been a little while since you've been here, let me catch you up real quickly. We're in the middle of a sermon series that I've entitled, Growing in the Presence of God. Growing in the Presence of God. This idea, in fact, since I've started studying and preparing messages for this series, I have seen this idea of God wanting to be present with His people. I have seen it everywhere in the Bible. It's amazing. It's like when you buy a car, and then the first week after you have the car, you notice everybody else in town's driving the same thing. You know, my wife and I got a white GMC Acadia last year, and I feel like there's a thousand white GMC Acadias in Camden County. And what's the, what's the difference? They've always been there, but I'm noticing them now. Well, I hope that's what this series does for you in terms of seeking the presence of God. So if you weren't here from the beginning of the sermon series, we started out in week one with this idea of the portrait of God's presence. And we preached out of Psalm 139 verses one through 10 that basically says there's two dimensions of God's presence. And this is key because if you don't get this, you'll miss the rest of the sermon series. All right. The key is this. God is present as a sovereign ruler everywhere at all times. All right. The Bible says if you go up to the depths of heaven and, or down to Sheol, God is there. God is here. God is everywhere. You can't escape God's sovereign ruling presence. But then there's God's relational fatherly presence. And only a believer in Jesus Christ can understand and experience that presence. It is sweet. It is abiding. It is all powerful. It is the purpose of why you exist. God created human beings in his image so that he could enjoy having them in his presence. All right. Sin got in the way of that. If you read the book of Genesis in the very beginning before sin entered the world, the Bible said that God walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day. But sin separated them. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Cherubim, who we're going to talk a lot about today, these angelic beings stood at the gate so they couldn't get back in the garden. And ever since then, we've been living a life void of what we were really created for, which is the presence of God. So that's the portrait of God's presence. Then we talked about the potential of God's presence in Psalm 1611, where it says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what we said is, if you're in God's relational presence, you have an opportunity to experience the highest amount of joy and pleasure that God created you for. Doesn't mean that your life's going to be perfect. That's the heresy of what TV preachers call the prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean that when you have God close to you, you're going to have great health and you're going to have great wealth. It means that God, who's better than great health and great wealth, is as close to you as the air you breathe. It's good news. That's the potential of God's presence. And then last time, this was two weeks ago, of course, last week we had Baptist Men's Day. Two weeks ago, we talked about the promise of God's presence. And we looked at the entire Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and we saw this constant promise that was made all the way from the beginning and all the way to where we look towards in the end. And basically, it's echoed in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20. He says, I am with you always till the end of the age. So we, we have a God who's everywhere at all times, yet for believers... He's close and he's relational and he's a father who loves you and he wants you to enjoy being in his presence. And he's the one who initiates that. He's the one who sent his son to die for us and then sent his spirit to indwell us 
but we have a responsibility too, and that's where we're getting at today when we talk about what's called the pursuit of God's presence. The pursuit of God's presence. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. And as I always like to do, I want to start us off with something to think about. Simple question. Probably get a lot of smiles. Do you remember what it's like to pursue someone you love? Think about it. Do you, do you remember what it's like to pursue someone you love? I used to tell uh, my friends this when I was in, in uh, college. There is not a man alive today who has ever married a woman that in the span of dating and courting her, he said things to her so embarrassing, he'd, ha- he'd bury his head in the sand if one of his friends heard him say it. All right, we say privately what we would never say publicly in the effort of wooing and pursuing those whom we love. I'll give you an example. I'm going to turn back the clock all the way to seventh grade. All right, I've been working with the flight kids. I got these middle school kids on my heart. Leilani, I want you to pay attention because I'm talking about flight now, right? All right, so when I was in seventh grade, uh, again, I had two best friends. One of them you know quite well is Joel Hoger. The other was Dean Holstein. Dean is a an amazing man of God who's serving in the army now for 20 years, grateful for his service. We made a deal in seventh grade. Our favorite thing to do, this was before iPods, this was before the internet, this was before, uh, you know, internet TV, all the forms of entertainment that kids have today. You know what we did back in seventh grade? We'd listen to the radio, all right? And we would lay in bed at night, and uh, by then, the technology had gotten so far that I had what was called a Sony Walkman. You remember the Walkman with the cassette singles that you'd put in there with big headphones? Well, every Sunday night, we would listen to the best radio show in Philadelphia. It was called the Q102 Instant Request Party from 9 to midnight. And we had this goal. Uh, Dean said, you and I are both going to dial that phone number until we get live on the air. Now, there's 5 million people in the city of Philadelphia. You can imagine the phone lines are always busy. But the goal was, whoever gets on the air has got to give a shout out to the other person and say their first and last name, because I want to record that my first and last name was said over the airwaves on the biggest radio station in Philadelphia. So every Sunday night, we would, maybe for an hour or two, we both hit the redial button, you get busy signal, busy signal, busy signal, and then every time at about 10 o'clock, I'd give up and go lay down. So I'd go to bed, I'd put my, my, uh, ear, ear, you know, my earbuds in, and I would listen to the rest of the show one day. One day, about 11 o'clock, I'm drifting in and out of sleep, and I hear, Q102, it's a request party, who's this? And I hear, yeah, this is Dean Holstein from Wallingford, Pennsylvania, and I shot up in bed, I said, he's on the air, he's on the air, (laughs) and he said, I want to give a shout out to my girlfriend, Jessica, I love you, baby, this song is dedicated to you, and they put on In the Still of the Night, and I got up and I threw my earphones across the room, I said, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And instead of saying hello to his best friend, he said hello to a girlfriend that he broke up with a week later. (laughs) The next day, I went to the bus stop, and I said, we're going to have a come-to-Jesus moment here. You promised me you would say my name, first and last name, on the airwaves. And he said, Bo, when a man's in love, he's got to do what he's got to do. Obviously, it was not true love, but the point I want to make is this, and every man in this room knows this, if you're married, you pursue the ones you love. 
You pursue the ones you love. If you love someone, you want to be with them, and you make an effort to be with them. God made an effort to be with you. He started with his son. Really, if you want to get biblical about it, we're going to talk about this at great length. He started handing down laws to Moses and creating a nation that he could dwell with people and draw the rest of the world to himself. That was fulfilled in sending his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that's take away the penalty of sin to reunite us with him. And then he sent down his Holy Spirit to be in you. But even more than that, now that he's pursued us, he says, it's time for you to pursue me. That's what this whole message is about this morning as we're going to look in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to cover a lot of ground in a pretty short period of time. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me. And as you do, here's the big idea that I want to mention in one sentence. Okay? In one sentence, I want to say this. We are called through our faith in Jesus Christ to passionately pursue God's relational presence in our daily lives. If you don't know what that is, turn with me to Hebrews. Again, we'll be in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, please turn to the Pew Bible, and you can turn to page 1194 in your Pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, again, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we love you. We thank you and praise you for the day that you have made. Father, we are overwhelmed at the idea that you have done all these things to have us to enjoy your presence, and yet you also call us to draw near to you as you have drawn us near. Father, this is not easy truth to understand. There's a whole lot here in this passage, Father, but I just pray that you'd grant us uh, a sweet grace today to open up our hearts and minds to understand all that the Israelites went through to experience your relational presence and how all that's been taken care of through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to understand and help us to respond to this by being obedient and drawing close to you, celebrating that you're a good God who wants to be close to his people. Be with us now, I pray, as we consider the truth of your words. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. amen. So we're in the book of Hebrews, and there's no way that you can understand this passage if you don't have a little bit of background in two particular passages in the Old Testament, okay? One of those is the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40, and the other is Leviticus, chapter 16. I'm going to give you a very, very quick snapshot, enough that you can have a context of what we're talking about but hopefully not too much where I get bogged down in some of the details, all right? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I need to tell you the truth about this. I'm like everybody else in this room. The many times that I've read through the first five books of the Old Testament, I get to Exodus when God starts handing down all the regulations for the tabernacle and you get into Leviticus and all these blood laws. It gets really confusing, doesn't it? 
because our society and our culture is so different. So to try to get a context of what it is, I'm one person speaking to another person who I'm here to tell you, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So I'm hoping I can make this, I can give you some pictures in your mind. In fact, we're going to look at some pictures on the screen to try to make this easy to understand because the more that you understand this, the more miraculous and glorious you will see that Jesus Christ is in giving us unlimited access to the presence of God. All right, so when we're talking about uh, the presence of God, we need to stop and think in the very beginning of the Bible, after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, you get to the book of Exodus, and in Exodus... God starts drawing a nation unto himself. Really, it starts in Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons are the 12 tribes of a nation that they would eventually call Israel, named after Jacob. All right? And as they establish this nation, you see at the end of the book of Genesis that Joseph, one of the 12 sons, God providentially placed him in Egypt, and he brought all of his brothers with him, and they basically set up shop in Egypt, until hundreds and hundreds of years later, after many pharaohs had died, there came a pharaoh who did not know exactly what had happened in the past, and all these Israelites were slaves under the rule of Egypt. And then we get to that famous picture in, in uh, the book of Exodus of the burning bush where God begins to speak to Moses, and then eventually we see God using Moses to lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness as they approach the land of milk and honey. And then finally, God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai and hands down the Ten Commandments. And I know everybody thinks of Charlton Heston when I say that. Comes down with those big tablets and he comes down off the mountain. And of course, we see the chaos that ensues. It takes 40 years for the Israelites to get to the edge of the promised land. And finally, Joshua is the one that takes them in. But when he hands down the law, shortly after that, he also hands down to Moses these regulations for a tabernacle. Again, if you are to read it, you can get bogged down in it pretty good because God is very specific on what he wants the tabernacle to look like. But let's keep a 30,000-foot view and a broad brushstroke of what God intended. God intended with the tabernacle to be present with his people. And in the tabernacle, we see two sides of God. We see his love and his holiness. I talk about this all the time. In his love, he wanted his people to be close to him. In his holiness... He said, you don't come to me on your terms, you come to me on my terms. And he hands down those terms in Exodus 25 through 40. All right, I would not tell you to read that right now if you want to make a note and go back in your, in your time and study. But in, in Exodus 25 through 40, he hands down all these specific requirements of this tabernacle. So as they're traveling in the wilderness, there, are, there is this series of materials that put together make a tent and a huge courtyard around the tent that follow them everywhere they go. A synonym for that in the scriptures is called the tent of meeting. And they set up this tabernacle so that God can be present with his people. So let's talk about the tabernacle just a little bit. Again, if you've never heard this or if it's been confusing when you've read it, I want to make it as simple as I can. All right, so in Exodus 25 through 40, he says, here's what I want the tabernacle to be like. It's a portable temple. All right, and the dimensions in today's measurements, it would be 150 feet long by 75 feet wide for a total of 11,250 square feet. So that's how big it is. And it's this huge courtyard with a gate around it. And then inside the courtyard, there's a tent that has two specific rooms. We're going to talk about those in a minute. All right. But every single element that God instructs the Israelites to do to put this tabernacle together has significance and meaning. I was told this morning that uh, Brother Bill Collins led a Sunday night study with all the special 
elements of the tabernacle, and maybe one day we'll revisit that, but I'm going I'm to hit the high notes here. All right, so first of all, the tabernacle itself represents that God wants to be present with sinners. So when you think tabernacle, think God, loving, wants to draw his people close to him, but holy tells them they can only come to him on his terms because he's holy and we're not. All right, so, so think about the tabernacle, this huge gate and a courtyard inside the gate, and then a tent with two main rooms inside the courtyard. So let's start the outside and work our way in. All right. The outside's the outer court. And the outer court is a place where any common Israelite could go. All right. And in the outer court, you have two main items. One's called the bronze altar. It's also known as the altar of burnt offering. And the second one is the bronze basin. Now, the altar is a symbol that God saves sinners. And that altar is where they actually have burnt offerings for the forgiveness of people's sins. Because when an animal was sacrificed, God took the punishment that the Israelites deserved and he put the punishment in the blood of the animal. So that's the bronze altar or the altar of burnt offering. The other is the bronze basin, which is a water basin that was symbolized ceremonial washing and cleaning. Not only did we need to be forgiven, we need to be cleansed. So you have the the altar of burnt offering. That's where the blood sacrifices are done, so the sins are forgiven. Then you have the bronze basin of water. That symbolizes that God wants to cleanse sinners. And that's on the outside in the courtyard where any Israelite could go in. Now, not every Israelite could do the sacrifice, but Israelites had access to the general court. But then you walk towards the tent itself. And in the tent, there are two rooms. All right, one's called the holy place. And then inside that room is another room called the holiest place, or what we commonly refer to as the holy of holies. All right, so let's start with the holy place. All right, if the whole courtyard's a place where all Israelites could go, the holy place is a place where only the Levitical priest could go. Okay, so you had to be chosen by God, consecrated by God, and you could go into this second room. Now, stay with me here. Now, in that room, there's a couple of things. First, there's a curtain. All right, and this curtain was a very special curtain, and you could not walk to the other side of that curtain unless you were a priest ordained of God to go in to that room. And there was also a table that had showbread on it. All right, and the showbread represented God's desire to have fellowship with sinners. All right, further on, you have a golden lampstand with seven spots for, for light. Okay, it kind of looks like what we'd call a modern-day menorah in Hebrew life. All right, and this is symbolizing that God gives light to the darkness of sin. All right, the third is the altar of incense. Okay, this is where the, the, uh, the priest would go in and burn incense on behalf of the people. And this is that proves that God gives a listening ear to his people because that incense rises up right to God himself. All right, so those are the three things inside the holy place. The table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. I know this is different. None of us have ever experienced that. You're never going to see any of those things here at Cedar Street. And at the end of the message, you'll know why. Here's where I really want to get to. The Holy of Holies. So you have the outer courtyard. The Israelites could go there. Then you walk into the first room inside the tent. That's the holy place. Only a Levitical priest could go there. Then you go into the deepest room, the most secluded room. It's called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there. And only once a year. Because God was manifesting his relational presence in that room and nobody was holy enough to approach it. So here's what would happen. There was one thing that was in that room. I want to draw your attention to the screen here. This is the first of the two things that I want to show you. 
All right, the first thing I want to show you is this. This is what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm sure I get a smile out of our Indiana Jones fans. I know we got one sitting there. Uh, you've seen a replica of this in the movie, I'm sure, Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right, so obviously there's a lot of pictures of the Ark of the Covenant that look a little bit different. This is a replica. No one has the actual Ark. We don't know where it is. I've heard some rumors about where it might be. But this gives you a mental image of what it is. So if you look at it closely, this is actually a box made of acacia wood, kind of like cedar wood. And it's fully covered in gold from top to bottom. And it has poles on the side so they can travel with it, take it with them wherever they go. Now, here's the key. On the inside of that box, because the top is a lid that comes off. Now, on the inside of that box, you've got three things. You've got an urn that holds the manna, which is the bread that God showers down from heaven. This represents that God provides for his people. All right, then you have the Ten Commandments on those two stone tablets. They're put inside the box. All right, that represents God's holy standard. And then you have the budding rod or staff of Aaron. Okay, that's the staff that Aaron used as part of the plagues uh, of Pharaoh, and that's also put in there. And that staff represents the authority of God and the power of God. Those three things are inside the box. Now, here's the key. See the top of that box? Those two things attached to the top are representing the cherubim, the angels. If you were to see the middle, you would see that they have angelic human-like faces, but huge angel wings, and those wings are touching each other. Now, they're mounted on the flat top surface of that lid, and that's called the mercy seat. Now, here's what would happen. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, it's what Jews today called Yom Kippur, the high priest would go inside the Holy of Holies, and he would do two things. First, they would slaughter a bull, and on behalf of the priest himself and the other Levitical priests, he would take the blood of the bull, he would walk in, and go ahead and show the other picture, uh, the second picture right there. He would walk in, and on his finger, he would sprinkle seven times the blood of the bull to atone for the sins of the priest and the other priests inside the tabernacle. Then he'd go out and get blood from a goat. And he'd go back in and he'd sprinkle with his finger seven times on the mercy seat, the flat top surface of the box, and that would be atoning for the sins of the people of Israel. Only one person could do it, that's the high priest. Only one time a year he could do it. And if you see that golden light that's shining in between the cherubim, that's what we call God's Shekinah glory, his manifested presence. In fact, they said that when Moses was in the presence of God up on Mount Sinai, they came down and he was shining. There was residue of God's Shekinah glory. Now, it wasn't his full glory. No human being can stare at God and live. But there was a sweet and special presence inside the tabernacle because God wanted to be close to his people, but yet no one could fully get in there because nobody was holy enough. They needed a priest to go on their behalf. And guess what happened? God had sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus took care of it all. In fact, I want you to think about this biblically as we walk through this. Jesus is the blood sacrifice, okay? He shed his blood so we don't have to kill any goats or bulls. Jesus is the torn curtain. The separation between God and man was ripped open when the body of Christ was ripped open. And Jesus is the high priest who makes sacrifice on our behalf. We'll talk more about that in the conclusion. But Jesus basically took all the regulations and wiped the slate clean. 
So you and I, when you come to church on Sunday, or even when you leave church and go back to your house, you don't need a high priest. You don't need the altar of incense. You don't need the Ark of the Covenant. You don't need a high priest. You can make a beeline right to God in the name of Jesus because Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. That's the gospel, the good news. Jesus in our place, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now, in the few minutes we have left, I want to look at the text here in Hebrews, because if you didn't know that, what I'm going to tell you in Hebrews would make no sense. But now that you know that, and you have those pictures in your mind of the Ark of the Covenant and of the uh, high priest, now Hebrews 10 is going to make a lot of sense. All right, so number one, I think the text teaches us to pursue God's presence confidently through the blood of Christ. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Here's what that says. I had confidence when a high priest would go on my behalf and sprinkle the blood of a bull or the blood of a goat because God would forgive my sins by punishing the animal instead of punishing me. But how much more confidence should I have when God punished his own son whose blood was royal and whose blood was pure in such a way that it would cover over all the sins, past, present, and future for anybody who would place their faith in him. If you have your faith in Jesus, you don't need anything else to be forgiven. You don't need anything else to have access to God through the blood of Jesus. As a child runs to a father, you can run with confidence to God. That's good news. We can confidently approach the throne of God almost as a child confidently opens the door to their front, to the front of their house and walks in because they live there. Now, I want to say this as we continue down to point two and point three. This does not mean that God is any less holy. It doesn't mean now that we're Christian, God has given up his holy standards. It means Jesus met his holy standards. God wants you to approach him confidently. What does that look like in your daily life? That means wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can stop and you can pray and you can ask God to draw close to you because he's asking you to draw close to him. He's saying, draw near to me with confidence if you come in the name of my son because as my son has died for you, I've now adopted you. He's saying, draw close to me. There are so many times in which God is, you know, the song Jody sang this morning, you're not alone. God's with you, but God wants you to draw to him, to pray to him, to be thinking about if God is present in this room, he knows everything. He will work to my greater good. It doesn't mean everything that happens is good, but it means God will bring out good from it in some way because that's the God he is. No longer do we need the blood of bulls and goats. We have the blood of Christ. And through Christ, we enter the presence of God with confidence. You don't have to think as an Israelite scared to get even close to the Holy of Holies. They were told that if they touched the Ark of the Covenant, they would die. We can enter the Holy of Holies through Jesus with full confidence. Not because we deserve to be there, but because God desires us to be there. And Jesus took care of the requirements for us. That's number one. Number two... Pursue God's presence intentionally through the body of Christ. All right, verse 20 says this, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. All right, so in the tabernacle, there were tents that had curtains. There's a curtain dividing the outer court 
from the holy place, and then another curtain dividing the holy place from the holy of holies. And that curtain was to represent the separation between God and man that was made possible by sin. There was no curtain in Genesis. Adam and Eve did not have to walk through a curtain because God walked with them because there was no sin. Once sin entered in and the cherubim guarded the gates and kicked them out, God says, I'm holy, you're not. Your sin's got to be taken care of or you can't come and be with me. When Jesus died on the cross at the crucifixion, the scriptures talk about the temple curtain that was torn in two. Because again, the tabernacle eventually became the temple when they rested in Jerusalem. All right, and here's the key. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. It wasn't turn, torn from bottom to top, which means God tore the temple curtain, not a high priest. Jesus Christ himself, through dying, who think about it this way. Jesus is both God and man. I say this a lot. Jesus is God looking down at man and man looking up at God as the bridge between the two. So he's taking the hand of God and the hand of man and where the curtain separated them, he's putting them back together so that on the cross when he's dying, we are finally living. This is the good news of the crucifixion. We, we have presence of God. We can be in God's relational presence because when his body was torn, that curtain was torn and now we can walk directly into the Holy of Holies because of Jesus Christ. Finally, number three, pursue God's presence intimately through the heart of Christ. This is key. Listen to verses 21 through 22. It says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me start with the beginning of that sentence. It says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you needed a high priest. I needed a high priest. The Israelites needed a high priest to go and make atonement and intercede for them. Jesus happens to be our high priest. And I say this with humility to all my friends who are Catholic. This sentence right here is a death blow to Catholic theology. This says that Jesus himself is the priest that you go to for confession. He's the priest that you go to for the presence of God. He's the priest that you go to for forgiveness and he's the priest that you go to to commune with your creator. You do not need a human being to do that. And I want to say this. I jokingly said this in our prospective member class this morning. Some people look at a pastor in ways they shouldn't. I don't have any more access to God than you do. Now, it's my honor to pray for those who ask for prayer, but I don't have any special power. I don't have any more direct access to God. He doesn't listen to me any more than he listens to you. I'm not a high priest. Jesus is the one who gives you and I equal access to the throne of God. Priesthood of all believers is a doctrine we hold near and dear. Everybody in this room has equal access to God. Now, I will say this before we close. There is one thing that will stop that sweet presence that you can enjoy with God, and there's one thing that will stop him wanting to listen to your prayers, and that is if you are living in unrepentant sin. Now, that sin has already been atoned for and forgiven eternally, which means you can't lose your salvation. But relationally, you, you're not close to someone when they're sinning against you. Think about this as a father to a child. There's nothing that child could do that would ever make you love them any more or any less. But there is something that child could do that would interrupt your, 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 your sweet relationship. There is something you can do that would make that father want to send you to your room for a little while. It doesn't change his love for you, but it does change his discipline for you. So if you want to enjoy sweetness with God, one of the keys is continual confession. 
That's why I lead us in confession every Sunday morning. I want to keep short accounts with God because I'm a sinner and there's not a day that goes by I don't at least have a sinful thought. And you do too. Okay, I say it all the time. No one would volunteer to have their thoughts projected on that screen for one full day. No one. All right, so as we move further down the passage, not only is Jesus our high priest, but when we have the spirit of Christ, we also have the heart of Christ. That's the Christian life. When you become a Christian, God is conforming you to the image of Jesus, which means he's giving you the mind of Jesus. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's giving you the heart of Jesus and the will of Jesus. You say, my kingdom come, my will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not my will, but thy will. Not my will, but God's. So when you become a Christian, you begin to receive the heart and the mind and the will of Jesus. That's the goal. And it says, it says in that passage that we have hearts that are purified and we draw with full assurance of faith. Think about the heart of Jesus. When he would draw close to the Father in his earthly ministry, he was fully assured God would listen. When he fed the 5,000, Jesus wasn't thinking, this might not work. He was thinking, I pretty much got a guarantee the bread truck's going to back up real fast when I say the word. All right? He had full assurance, and when you put your faith in Jesus, you're given the same assurance that he has. He was assured that God loved him and God wanted his very best. And also clean and pure. Again, I know we're sinful and we're trying our best through our own efforts, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves because we don't have the effort to clean ourselves up. God works on our behalf to make us more like Jesus through his Holy Spirit, but we're already declared perfect by the blood of Jesus. We're declared clean and pure, and we're seen as a child of God. Christ makes all of that possible. So let me sum this up as a summary of everything we've talked about here, and then I'm going to make it practical in the last minute. All right, in one sentence, if I could sum all this up, I'd say this. Christ enables us to pursue God's presence with confidence because he is the blood sacrifice who provides cleansing in us, the torn curtain who gives access to us, and the high priest who makes intercession for us. In us, to us, and for us. Jesus has done it all. He's accomplished it all. And guess what our response is? Trust and obey. Trust and obey. When God says, draw near to me, we don't have to sit and wonder. We can get up and draw near to him as a child runs back to his home when the dinner bell's rung. You can experience a greater presence of God in your life. I'm claiming this promise for myself. Tuesday morning, I was preparing this message in my office. And for over an hour, I stopped and knelt before my, my desk. Actually, it was Monday. And I said, God, I don't want to preach this unless I can have this in my own life. Now, again, feelings come and go. And there's moments that you, if you've ever prayed and you felt this amazing experience or presence of God, and then there's other days that God feels like he's a million miles away. I don't want you to worship an experience. I talked about that at the beginning of this series. But I do want to say this. You should be aware of the presence of God every hour of your life. That's the goal. When you're talking on the phone with someone, asking God, God, give me words of grace so that I can speak to this, some, this person in love. When you're balancing your checkbook, God, Give me the grace to understand how you want me to use this money. And, and I praise you that you've given me enough to make it another month. When you are in the grocery line and you're starting to get aggravated that somebody in front of you has got 12 items in the 10 or less aisle, God is with you. God, help me to be patient. When you're having strife with your spouse, 
And you're saying, this person knows how to say or do the one thing that hurts me the deepest. Jesus is with you. The presence of God is his goal. It's his idea. It's not ours. God wants to be close to you. He went to all the trouble of a tabernacle to tell the people, I want to be close. And then he went even further, sending his son to do away with all the regulations of the tabernacle and say, I just want you to come and be with me. But you have to make an effort. You have to pursue him. And I would say, I'd give you just three as we close. I would pursue him in prayer. Okay, praying to God, asking him to help you to know his presence. You pursue him in the reading of his word because that's the most clear way in which God speaks to us. And you also pursue him in worship. Can I tell you something? Beyond just an emotion, singing that music this morning, I experienced God's presence because he is specially present among his people. The gathered body of Christ together coming to worship a healing Savior draws in God's presence. That's why I'm not missing Sundays. That's why the Super Bowl may be at 6.30, but I'm going to be in this house till 6 o'clock. I want the presence of God in my life because the game is going to come and go, but my God will be with me forever. Pray the same for you. We're going to enter into a time of invitation. You can experience a greater presence of God at the altar, in the pew, in the car, wherever you're headed as we pray. You come as you feel led. And let me say one last thing. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you don't have access. He loves you, but he's holy. You can only come to him on his terms, not yours. And you need to give your life to Jesus Christ because he desires to have an eternal presence with you. Would you come and bow before him and say, God, I give my life to you because of your son today. Let's pray. Father, your word is so deep, we'll never plumb the depths of it. There's so much meat on the bone, it would take hours upon hours to flesh out everything that was even talked about in one sentence today, Father. There's just so much there, but the simple part of it is that you love us and you want us to be close, but you're holy and we can't come on our terms. Father, I beg you, I beg you to draw close to us and help us to draw close to you, as you say in the book of James. Father, I, I beg you to show us the sin in our life that's getting in the way of our relationship with you. And I pray for everyone in this room, Father, they would draw close to you in a sweet way that as we leave the, the doors here today, we'd be consciously aware of you, thinking about you, praying to you, drawing to you in a way that we haven't before because we know that's your will. And for anyone that doesn't know Jesus, Father, would you open their eyes? Let them see they need Jesus. We need him every moment for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.